Okay, welcome to this episode of the Artist of Motion podcast. My guest today is Mr. Dominic Jones, a.k.a. The Professor. He is a tenured professor at the Sendai Seiyo Gaiken College in Japan, responsible for the English program, as well as numerous other pieces he's got his hands in. He's been in the martial arts since 1989, and he's continued to study and teach ever since, holding black belts in a couple of different styles, which I'm going to let him tell you all about here shortly. What he's really interested in these days is all aspects of the martial sciences and the traditional samurai martial arts of Japan. So Dominic, I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to you and you can tell us your CV and get going from here. Hello, Steve. Thank you very much for having me on to your podcast. Um, it's a real honor to be here. Um, and uh, I love the introduction. It's great. Um, and that, that in a nutshell is is who I am. I, I started in the martial arts in 1989 as a 18 year old and my first art was Ed Parker's Kempo Karate um, and I studied in England actually in Exeter in England and that was the beginning of my martial arts journey I, I, I was always interested in the martial arts but I really wanted to become good and proficient at self-defense uh, when I was 17, 17 or 18, I went into hospital for a couple of operations and I came out, uh, I've always been pretty skinny, but I came out even more skinny and I thought, okay, I need something to protect myself. So <laughs> I, I, I looked around for the martial arts clubs and um, I went to one, it was a Kung Fu um, instructor had come down from another city and we, we talked for about 20 minutes, but the Conversation seemed to be about, you know, money and um, he would come down every four weeks to see how we were doing. And I was like, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to get a lot out of this. And then uh, luckily there was an open night um, at York Road, which was the British Kempo Karate Union headquarters. And I walked in there and it was completely different because it was a, a professional studio, um, you know, full time, seven days a week. Um, the instructors looked all very competent, and the explanation was was great. And I thought, okay, Kempo, that sounds uh, that sounds good to me. And that was, as I say, as an 18-year-old, and I really loved it because Kempo appealed to my sense of how. I like to know how things work. Um, for example, when I joined a local football team, I was the goalkeeper, and so I thought, okay, I'll go to the library and get a book about goalkeeping. How does how do you become a better goalkeeper? And that how do you become a better, I think, is the you know a theme of my life. Uh, and and then Kempo seemed to be great because it was well, if somebody throws a right punch at you, this is, is what you do. I was like, oh wow, it's easy. And if somebody chokes you from the rear, this is what you do. I was like, oh, oh great, all, all the answers. And um, and that's where I was as an 18 year old uh, in Exeter studying under um, Mr. Rose, Mr. Bob. And the first ever lesson my instructor was uh, Miss Diane Summers. And an impression upon me because she said we were all white belts, you know, maybe there were about eight or nine of us. And she said, OK, by in three months time, you will grade to your yellow belt and you will be able to do 25 push-ups on the knuckles. And I was like, wow, I don't think I can do one at the moment, but okay. 
And it, so it was very hardcore kind of physical training. And it was, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the sport, the sporting side of it and the intellectual side of it. I've always felt Kempo and the martial arts is like three dimensional chess. And so Kempo was my home for, um, for many years. And then from Exeter, I went to university where I studied geology and law and went uh, to another um, BKKU club uh, under Mr. Felix Bishop. And this is interesting because it was in the next state or the next county, as we say in England, and uh, which is Cornwall, which is the most westerly county. Uh, and is where I'm from. But then I moved to the next county, Devon, uh, to start karate and that's where I was living and then I when I went back to Cornwall for this club I was considered an outsider you know you know it was like well hang on a minute I, 18 years in Cornwall I'm not really an outsider like because I'd come from the kind of the rival state uh, so that was interesting and Mr Felix was a uh, bishop was an amazing instructor and very friendly and uh, you know I continue to enjoy my campo journey and and then university took me to America. I went to the University of Wyoming uh, for a one year um, exchange program in Laramie. I actually applied for uh, UCLA because um, Babe Watch was or Baywatch was very popular at the time. <laughs> Bit of a Freudian slip. And um, and I thought, OK, this is great. I love the ocean. Um, this is going to be fantastic. I love, you know. L.A. sounds really cool with Hollywood and, and all these motions. Um, and then I ended up in, in Wyoming, and that's about as far away from the ocean as you can get. And it's, um, uh, it's the climate is a desert. It doesn't rain there. Um, but it is big, wide and wonderful. Wyoming is an amazing place. And this was 1990, 91. And I wanted to continue my martial arts. So I, I looked around for a Kempo Karate Club and couldn't find one in the uh, in Laramie, and but there were there was a Okinawa Tei club and an Okinawa Kempo club. So I joined both of them, and enjoyed enjoyed that. And they were the much more the tradition more traditional uh, Japanese or Okinawan martial arts, and that was good fun. Um, these days were pre pre social media, pre the internet really, and so, yeah, it was pre the internet and. So it was difficult to find uh, other like-minded martial artists. Because um, I think um, Mr. Mills has got a club in Larry. Um, you know, Mr. Paul Mills, a very famous uh, Kempo Karate instructor. But I didn't know that and I couldn't find that out. And Wyoming is... Yeah, pretty hard to find with no internet back then. Exactly. Yeah. And... and Wyoming is big. You can drive for hours and not see anybody. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Good luck finding somebody there. They don't want to be found. Exactly. But it was a real culture shock coming to America because I've always been a sportsman, uh, mainly tennis, but also football and rugby and cricket and athletics, or any, any sports, really. And my university, which was the University of Plymouth, our sports facilities was in a five meter by eight meter room. That was the university sports facilities. It was basically one kind of multi gym type thing. Uh, and that was it pretty much. 
and um, well, I can go to America, I go to uh, Wyoming, and it's got 18 whole golf course. It's got a 50,000 seater football stadium. There was also a 25,000 indoor basketball arena. So, I mean, this was better facilities than my city of you know 300,000 people um, in 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 the university. Uh, so I enjoyed my my life in in America. Then came back. Um, to England and became a, uh, a chartered geologist or an environmental geologist. And that was my career for about seven years. Um, I had a two or three, about a two year break in training after I came back from America because I was concentrating on my, on my work and I didn't want to start Kempo again because I realized the commitment that is involved in inner martial art. And I wasn't ready to give that commitment back to the martial arts. And then the day came and I went up, went back to York Road because I was back in Exeter. And I saw the instructor, Mr. Gary Courtney. Mr. Courtney is an amazing instructor as well. And I said, look, I'm back. I, I used to be a purple belt, but um, I want to start again in the white belt class. And do I need to take my belt off? And he said, no, you, you've earned your belt. Just, you know, keep training. And when you're ready to take your blue belt, you know, go through and we'll, you know, take it on from there. And I said, oh, that's, that's, that's very cool. Um, you know, and I paid for the year's membership, you know, straight off the bat. And he said, are you sure? I'm like, well, I'd already made the decision. It's like, I've made the decision. That's why I'm here. That's being um, serious about it. You're right here. Here's my money. Go. We're on for the next year. Yeah. That's right. And completely. And we had a great, it was a great uh, club at that time. Um, it was Basic, mainly adults. So the adult club was very um, prominent, and there was a, a kids section as well. And the, um, I didn't really get involved in the kids training, uh, as in most martial art schools. The kids, um, you know, they have a lot of fun, and it's it's really great for their character, and it also helps to support financially the school. Um, but I was all about the kind of the, you know, the the nitty gritty of uh, you know the sparring, the forms, the techniques of the martial arts. And we had had a great time there. Um, I did become a kids instructor for about eighteen months, but it was it was too stressful for me because I had a my job was quite stressful, and I'd I'd come in there and there'd be all these you know little tykes running around, and you know I'd say to stop, they would do a jumping flying kick. So <laughs> it was uh, I said okay, well I better you know just concentrate on my own studies here. Um, and then later on when the local university, Exeter University, um, opened up a club. And my, my friend, uh, uh, Igor, he was the instructor, and I helped him as the assistant instructor. And we started training up at the local university. And this was good for a few reasons. And, and the main reason is I met my wife there. She was um, my wife, Eri. She was doing her master course in pagan studies, which is a very interesting <laughs> subject. Uh, she's Japanese, so she came here to study I don't know, witches and wizards and uh, strange folk. And uh, she found me, and uh, we. She joined the karate club. And now you kind of got the wizard beard going on, so. Yeah, yeah, I was clean, clean shaven then. I was, uh, uh, clean shaven then, and that was good. And, and she became, she studied up until her brown belt um, level. And then she said, okay, that's enough for me. Uh, we got married. And then 
in 19, I was working as an environmental geologist and I realized I had to find a new job. So I was going, okay, if, I'm, if I move to another city to find a new job in geology, why don't I move to Japan? And so we moved to Japan, as you do. And I thought, okay, one year, two years. Yeah, that's not a small decision, though. Hang on. Yeah, I, well, I think I'm not shy about making decisions. And, and some would say... I, yeah, that I can definitely vouch for. Yes. And some would say, well, maybe. But at the time, did you speak any Japanese? No, none at all. None at all. Um, I knew one. Well, I knew probably samurai, sumo, ninja. And that was it. <laughs> sushi. <laughs> maybe sushi. <laughs> okay, so off and, we uh, go to Japan. Yes. Wow. Uh, so I went to Japan and an amazing country that it is for the year I, I was there and I'm now 21, 22 years in. Um, it's, it's good because I became an English teacher. And I think that's where my passion is. I love teaching. And when I was a geologist, it, it was quite difficult to teach rocks. You know, I, was, <laughs> I, was <laughs> I had a hammer. I used to hit them. You know, I couldn't really, they didn't really interact very well. And also, uh, being a geologist, I did a lot of site investigations, and that meant being outside in the rain and all weathers. And it, it was it was kind of cool, and it was a very interesting job. Um, but when I came to Japan, I became a, an English teacher. And then I found that I preferred talking to people, and I preferred teaching. And then that was my that was my career. I became a an English teacher. Uh, back in back in '99, and I'm still in the, you know the teaching profession now. Um, I started off in private language schools, and then I went in junior high schools and high schools, and now I work in in university as a as a tenured professor. So I've, it, that's been very in itself has been a very interesting journey um, for me. And when I came to Japan, I after about a year, I started up a, a temp club called it Sendai Kempo because that's where I'm from in Sendai in Northeast Japan, which at the time nobody had heard of. Um, and it was, uh, it was a good place. And my wife is from Fukushima, which is the next state, which is another place that nobody had ever heard of. Um, actually, my state was called Miyagi. So you know, when people know of Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kick. Well, I, I was kind of living in his hometown, I guess. <laughs> And but it was it was a very nice life. I continued to do Kempo Karate, and that was good. And that's where I fell in love with uh, Larry Tatum's um, video series. So he had made a video series of all. Was that the Panther Production series or the one after that? Both of them. Yeah, the Panther Production was the forms and the sets and the basics, and then just. After I arrived in Japan, or about the same time I arrived in Japan, then the Technique uh, videos came out. Yeah, that was a large um, series of videos. Oh, yeah. My, my wife, uh, um, she, she knows <laughs> all the kind of intro sounds. These kind of Japanese, like, whoosh, whoosh, or do-do-do-do-do, or whatever it is in Japanese. And I, I wore them out. So that was my entertainment pre-internet days, was watching Larry Tatum. Um, who 
was my instructor, Mr. Roses. It was his instructor. Mm. So there was it was it was part of our, our lineage, our lineage. And it was great to watch him explain how to do the techniques and, and the forms, etc. So I, I, I went heavily on that. And it was interesting because the BKKU, which which is the British Kempo Karate Union, I belong to, up until 99 had been very, very insular. You know, we're doing our own stuff. And then I guess with the Internet, suddenly we decided or to go out to become, you know, find more Kempo clubs nationally and internationally. It was just after I left, though I don't know if they're waiting for me to leave or, <laughs> or not. So they went to Jersey. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for, you know, in your case, I guess it's like, wait a minute, now, now I'm gone. Now you go out and do this. Okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. They say, yeah, we met these really cool. We went to Jersey. We met, uh, you know, Ed Parker and uh, we did all these things and I go, oh, wow, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then the word, I, I came back and to England a couple of years later and, and there was word about SL4. And I said, like, oh, what's SL4? You know, Dr. Chappelle and SL4. I'm saying, well, okay, I've heard the name on the internet forums, but it sounds an interesting guy. Um, can you show me something? And they said, oh, okay. So I was just in a barbecue at the time. And we did a technique called thrusting salute, where somebody steps through with a front kick and um, you step up the circle to 430 with a, a left downward block. And then you step forwards with a heel palm well um to the to the head it's, it's a great technique and i was like okay i know that technique it's a, it's a typical campo karate ed parker technique and they said okay well you know you give me the attack dom and okay so i give the good attack and then after they did the block they lifted up their left hand straight in front as what they called a, a depth check and so my upper body with the momentum from the kick bounced into this fist or this this structured dev check and then i kind of bounced back about three or four meters and i was like wow okay yeah, that's not so much a dev really check effective. as in you're no longer going to be in my depth that's right exactly and it was such a it was it was so immediately obvious that that was effective and that upgraded what we did and I was like, okay, well, I'd, I'd want to know some more about this SL4 stuff. Um, and then I went back, but obviously I, was, I went back to Japan, so I was just on holiday. And in 2004, my instructor at the time, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Kevin Mills, he, he came out with Gary Courtney for a BKKU tour of Japan. And we had a lot of fun in Japan and uh and Mr. Mills taught me some rudiments of um, SL4 you know how to do the basic blocks how to stand etc I was like oh wow this is cool this is very cool and that became really important because we were following the Larry Tatum um prescription of blocks and one of them would be an extended outward block and it kind of looks a bit like this uh which you can't see because we're on video but it's it's about eyebrow height and it kind of and it and it moves out laterally with your with your fist kind of bent over almost like you're showing your for, your your forearm muscles in a kind of a, in a pose as a, as an extended outward block which seemed to be quite effective to me um and then we went to the SL4 or Dr Chappelle's uh, outward extended block uh, which was 
like the inward block, but on the outside 45 degree angle. And it was immediately, in my opinion, so much stronger. Um, and that was that was interesting. So I thought, okay, these blocks are quite cool. And in in Japan, I met one one guy who was doing American um, American Kempo Karate, or and his name was Mr. Michael Tate. Uh, Mr. Tate is one of Cybok uh, Tom Kelly's students. He was a fifth degree black belt at the time, up at Misawa Base, uh, working in for the DOD in the school system. Amazing, amazing guy. We went up to the base and stayed with his family. We did some training. And I was doing short form one, which was a, a famous Kempo Karate form. And you step back and do an inward block. And he looked at my block and he went, why is your block at eyebrow level? And I said, why is the top of your fist at eyebrow level? And I'm saying, well, you know, it's there to in case somebody punches me in the head. He said, oh, OK. He says, I'll go do that one again. So I did it again. And he punched me in the top of the head with looping over a punch and it's like boom and it, it was knocked me back <laughs> he hits very hard and he says it doesn't seem to work <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you're quite blocking your head here well unless you count face block which you know we don't teach face block but sometimes people learn it anyway right <laughs> exactly yeah um so i was like oh okay and so he brought the block up to the same position that uh, in SL4 and, and Dr. Fell teaches, which is the elbow is, le is horizontal with your shoulder, and so that you've moved up the block one height zone, and, and then the block worked perfectly. That was before I'd learned the uh, SL4 inward block. Um, and then when I was taught the inward block of the SL4, it, it's, oh, well, this makes a lot of sense. And then I learned another block which is an inside downward block with SL4 in the Kempo Karate techniques. It's a, it's a beautiful block. And there was a, a particular raking, was it raking maze? Anyway, it was, a, it, was a, it was somebody come in with an uppercut as the punch. And in the Larry Tatum versions that we were doing, we used frictional drag and we kind of made a little circle and then brought them into a, a clawing heel palm. To, that was pretty much the, 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 the stop. Um, but when you do the SL4 version and you bring it down, it has tremendous amount of power and structure. And so when Mr. Tate came up for his uppercut punch the next year, I was ready for the uppercut punch. And, and so down went my structural block and, and I got a, a, a very satisfactory, ooh, good block. Nice. <laughs> So, so as you can see, I was, I was getting more interested in this, this, uh, the mechanisms of, um, of SL4 or sub-level Kempo as, as it was called at the time. And, but I was still teaching the, the Kempo Karate um, syllabus, you know, the 154 techniques out of the Infinite Insights, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, 154 techniques and like 72 extensions or something. Yeah, they were the ones. Yeah, I loved them. I had all the videotapes and um, it was great. They were, you know, and I, I, they taught me a lot. Um, it taught me to be, my goal, my initial goal of training was to be spontaneous. I wanted to be able to just move. If somebody attacked me, no matter what it was, I could just move and defend myself. And I graded up to a fourth degree black belt with the British Kempo Karate Union 
and I was able to do that. I was I was fast, I was uh, strong, I was spontaneous. I was all you know. I was very, I was happy with my with with my level. You know, in a decade of knowing you, that's the first time you've ever admitted to actually being fast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All I ever hear from you is I've got good timing. I'm not really fast. Yeah. Okay. Now it's on record. <laughs> now it's on record. Well, let's do my Kempo karate stuff. And uh, <laughs> I, I was I was fast, spontaneous. I, I didn't have the structure. I didn't have the structure, the structural integrity of moving. Um, so that was something that you know Dr. Chappelle's teachings brought brought in. But I was still teaching Kempo Karate and I tried to bring in, okay, I'll bring in the blocks, I'll bring in some of the footwork, um, I'll bring in the stomps or the platform alignment mechanisms as, as we call them. So these mechanisms, the SL4 mechanisms were upgrading the, the techniques that, that I'd learned. And so this was good. So I had a kind of a hybrid system. It was the you know, the 154 techniques, and then I'd put in the SL4 mechanisms where I could see they would fit. The problem became apparent that it was incompatible. When I was doing the Kempo Karate, my original training, I was doing things which didn't feel correct for my body, didn't feel strong. And um, at that time, I made a decision my club was Sendai Kempo. I, I'd graded up my student. They'd just taken, um, yeah, Philip, Philip Wood. He'd just taken his second degree, no, not second degree, second Q, knee Q, brown belt. And then I finished teaching that and I said, okay, right, well, we, that'll be the last one um, that, that I'll do. Um, and it might have been Yuki, Yuki Kanamata as well. She, she was another one of my students. And anyway, we just finished her grading, uh, her brown belt grading. I was like, okay, well, from now on, we're going to go pure sub-level four technique training. Now, had you gotten actually uh, in so, touch with anybody outside of what Mills had showed you at that point? Or are you doing this basically on what Kevin was teaching you of the SL4 mechanics? No, that's, that's a great question. Um, that was probably that was after that was when I finally made the decision to stop. That was probably about 2014. So it was, um, and I'd met, which I'll talk about next. I'd gone to Los Angeles to train with Dr. Chappelle. And so I'd had some lessons with Dr. Chappelle and, and then, but I was still, so I was having Dr. Chappelle's teaching plus looking at the, um, the original uh, Kempo Karate teaching. Um, so, as I said, in 2010, um, I became, a, in 2009, I became a, a working at a university and in Japan. And it, I had an opportunity to go to a conference in in Long Beach, I think. About Long Beach. In, 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 uh, and I thought, okay, this is, this is great. I will, I will, you know, I'll contact, uh, you know, Mr. Rose and I'll contact Mr. Mills and I'll ask them for an introduction to Dr. Chappelle. And then I emailed Dr. Chappelle and I said, look, I'm, I'm coming into LA and I'd, I'd like to come train with you if I could. And he, he was very gracious and he said, you know, he said, you know, 
come down to Torrance. This is where he was training at the time. And, you know, you know, we'll, we'll come down and we'll have a chat. So I, I flew to L.A. and during the days I was in an academic conference. And then it, the first day I met, or first evening I met Dr. Chappelle. Well, he said, how am I going to recognize you? And I said, well, I said, I'm going to be uh, I'll be in the uh, subway sandwich shop next to the next to the school, the uh, the and uh, you'll recognize me because I'll look like a tourist. And he laughed. And then we, that was it. We, I, I met him, we had a chat, and then we got onto the floor. And that was an amazing experience because Dr. Chappelle, he looked at me after I got changed. And I was, on, I, was, I was in my uniform on the floor. And he said, OK, this, this is going to be an examination of basics. And that was the first lesson I had with Dr. Chappelle. And it became apparent that I needed a lot of work. <laughs> so I was fast and I could defend myself. We had, uh, you know, the students come in, you know, you'd have like Mr. Angel, you'd come in and throw, you know, quick combination punches at my head to see if, you know, I had, if I had any kind of skill. And, and of course I did because we were, we were well trained and I was able to block them. And then but then it was shown, it was quickly demonstrated to me that my blocks, uh, as they were, could be better, and my stances could be better, and everything could be better. Um, and I enjoyed that. So that trip, I think I had about six or six lessons, six or seven multi-hour lessons, five-hour lessons, six-hour lessons with Dr. Chappelle. Videotaped everything. And it and it blew my mind. Good Lord, how did you function during the day? <laughs> it was tough. It was um, it was an interesting first visit to Los Angeles. <laughs> Put it like that. Yeah, brain fried. I don't think is going to cover it. it completely, because yeah, it was brain fried in the morning and then brain fried in the evening, and yeah, just brain fried would be it um but it was just adrenaline and keeping me going and the fact that wow this is amazing material uh, and i remember being there one night and it was probably two in the morning and i and they were saying oh how do you find la so far i said well i spend days in a conference <laughs> what's la <laughs> and then i spend nights here i said um i said i'd like to go to the beach are we are we near the beach and they look at me, and it's pitch black outside, of course. And they go, yeah, it's only a quarter of a mile away. You know, it's just over there. <laughs> Hadn't even seen the beach in LA. Which is, so, uh, which is my primary reason to go to Los Angeles 20 years earlier you know, for Baywatch. <laughs> but anyways, um, training with Dr. Chabelle has been such a, a privilege and an honor. And it really is. And going, coming to LA, I've... That was in 2010, and since then, twice a year, I've I've uh, taken a week or two weeks out of my schedule twice a year to go and train with Dr. Chappelle, mostly in Los Angeles. Uh, occasionally, a couple of times, gone to Dublin as well um, with Dr. Chappelle. So, I put a lot of effort into in, into the training, and the the material which is what we call what we, we are studying and what we're learning is just unbelievably good. And what do I mean by that? It's 
Dr. Chappelle himself um, it was a 40, about a 40-year law enforcement veteran uh, working in many branches of, of law enforcement from, from, from city to state um, up to the federal level. So a vast array of experience of, in law enforcement he has. So when he teaches us something, either he's tried it for real on resisting people or people he's worked with have done it. He's taught in police academies. He's taught, you know, amazing things. So he has this uh, amazing information that is based in, in real life experiences of, of street violence in, in America. So that's one, one part which is amazing. The second part is amazing is he's an amazing educator. The way he teaches and classifies and organizes the material is amazing. And he also understands about the realities of, of, of street combat, i.e. adrenaline and stress. Um, you know, it's, we all know it's very easy to perform when there's no pressure. And then as the pressure comes on, it's more difficult to perform. And then you can't really get anything more pressurized than a potentially life or death situ situation in the street, the ultimate pressure. So that's good. And then as an English teacher, I, I understand this. My students, um, I could get them to give a self-introduction in English, my Japanese students, and they would give me a, a very nice self-introduction. I'd say, okay, now go and stand in front of the class and give the same introduction. And it would be stuttering and, and tongue-tied. So, you know, stress affects performance. Um, and so it's very important to have this stress inoculation training and that's what I also got um, while I was coming to to Los Angeles so you have the training side of it and then equally important when coming to Los Angeles was the ability or, or the introductions to amazing people amazing people like yourself Steve far too kind sir far too kind <laughs> it's true amazing people like Crouch who's been on the pub podcast who's a, a genius um, of and Ed Parker, introduction to Ed Parker, um, an amazing guy, and you know Guru Cliff Stewart, to Douglas Wong, Carl Totten, you know, some legendary grandmasters, um, and they've all been very very nice. Um, and then Doctor Stone, Doctor Stone was an amazing, or is an amazing uh, person. Not only was he very very good at the martial science. Uh, but his chiropractor, being a chiropractor, was amazing. I, I went to show, give an example of what what training in Los Angeles is like. You know, I turn up for a class. It's a five-hour class. Started probably around about half past eight, finished at say two in the morning or whatever. And then at two in the morning, Dr. Stone is there, and he's brought his, you know, his massage table out, and. He's saying, well, you know, he's saying, Dom, is there anything you want done? I said, well, you know, you know, some bits and pieces. He said, okay, well, you know, jump on the table. And then about half an hour of, of him kind of prodding and pulling and, and snapping, breaking and popping. Um, I got off of the table and I was like, I, I, I said to him, I said, oh, I feel much better now. And I said, oh, well, there was one thing I'd, I'd like to talk to you about is my, my shoulders are completely, you know, are, are turned in and completely narrow. 
And then I looked up in the mirror. I, I, I stood up and I realized I couldn't see my shoulders anymore. Now, for all my, all, all my life, they've been rolled forward so I could see both my shoulders. And then they just disappeared. They dropped back into their proper place about three inches back. And that was something that, you know, like I say, I'd lived with my whole life and with the adjustments there. So that, that you know, a life changing thing that happened um, while I was coming to train in Los Angeles. Amazing. I remember my shoulder being a problem when I did archery when I was about nine years old. I had the Olympic archery type bow and I'd, I'd pull the string back. And then when I let go of the string, it would bounce off my shoulder. Ow. So it would kind of bounce off my shoulder, make a bit of a wobble, and then the arrow would just go everywhere. And I went for this, this kind of, you know, evening class. And, you know, after about an hour, they just said, thanks very much, but please don't come back. Because <laughs> I think I'd broken two arrows. and <laughs> Hitting everything but the target. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, what is going on? And so that was so that was interesting. Um, so I'd been there a long, long time. And so Dr. Stone, he, he sorted me out, and that was amazing. And then with Dr. Crouch, another amazing chiropractor. Um, but he's also amazing, Dr. Crouch, because of neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. I started getting interested in that, and Dr. Crouch gave me a reading list, so I bought the list and I read it. And amazing stuff amazing stuff and it, again it's been a big part of my research at university that was one of the areas I've, I've now looked into and I think NLP uh, neuro-linguistic programming is should be a compulsory subject it's it's how the modeling side of it is how to look at somebody who's good at doing something and understand why are they good at it and not only that, but kind of download the recipe and then you can upload it to somebody else. Yeah, how to replicate the framework. Mm -hmm. And it's and it works. It's it's amazing stuff. And and in my time in education, it's now becoming much more popular in in English education circles. They they don't they don't credit NLP, but they'll they'll go back to some other parts of um, psychology or some other parts of sociology or whatever sciences it is. But it's, you know, it's the same stuff. Uh, when I see the... Yeah, NLP being just a specialized branch of psychology. Well, not just, but it's a it's a specialized branch in the psychology field. That's right, yeah. It's 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 uh, pretty much a black sheep. It's, it's considered to be pseudoscience uh, by professional psychologists or the ones I've met. Yeah, quote-unquote. Um, quote-unquote. However, when you when I'm seeing what's being written, I'm like, well, hang on a minute. I learned that through NLP or I learned, you know, that's coming up now, whether it's, um, sales training or personality reading or lots of different fields. And I'm like, okay, well, I first heard about that and studied that in, in neurolinguistic programming. So it's, yeah. uh, and I'd recommend it for anybody. Yeah. Dr. Crouch has got stuff. two programs going right now that he's working on developing. So I'm not going to, uh, give away one of them, but one of them has, is specifically applying NLP and DeKempo. So that one, I'm excited yes, when uh, he brings I, that one out. I'll be one, among the uh, first ones that's going to be signing up to take that course myself. Me too. Me too. He's 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 used me as a guinea pig a couple of times when I've, I've driven down to to see him um, whilst in LA, and 
it's amazing what 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 he's able to do. Mm -hmm. um, I've been the beneficiary of being uh, really on, is on amazing his, uh, floor a couple of times, and it's definitely a total mind rewarp. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and it's great stuff. So you've got you've got Doctor Crash is amazing. You've got you know, you've got Edmund Parker, Mister Parker, amazing amazing guy. Um, his artwork is amazing. His martial arts is even better. Um, well, his paxual arts incredible now. Incredible but... knowledge. Mm, now, paxual arts. I mean, and paxual arts is, well, as he describes it, as the, you know, the yin and yang. You need the, sometimes you need the hard, the, the hard physical stuff to break people because that's important or essential at that time. But at other times, you don't need to, to have that level of dis, uh, destruction. And then the, the softer part of it. Yeah, not every is tool needed is a sledgehammer important. or a crowbar. Uh, that's right, yeah. And, and it, it's, it's, um, it's amazing, really. And it's great to see him get so much more acceptance in the, in the martial, martial art community, especially in the Kempo community. I met many people who said, oh, okay, he's uh, Grandmaster Parker's son, you know, Big deal so what he doesn't train i've never seen him go to a competition and but you know I, I've, I've met the man i've talked to him and he showed me some stuff an amazing level of knowledge he has incredible yeah never mind the fact that he's got a drawer full of diplomas he never talks about very humble very uh, just in, incredibly talented uh, and then the the partial uh, arts he was he was telling me about it actually it's in his living room in Pasadena, and he was talking about it. And my my light bulbs were going off in my mind. I was like, "Wow, this is this is information that the world needs. This will make the world a safer and a better place, and it'll make children less likely to be bullied, have more have more confidence. It's just it's it's just all good. And um, and it's been really interesting to kind of from afar watch how that's been progressing with you know with his wife there and they, they're putting together such an amazing program it's unbelievable yep and, you know and, it, and again an, another person um who i wouldn't have get to meet, meet if i didn't come to la the um no, the passion arts is 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 so interesting uh because other than studying at the martial science University or American Chongfa, as it's um, as now known. I'm very interested in self-defense. As I said right back at the beginning, when I was 18 years old, uh, I went to learn a martial art to protect me. And I think many, many people were in that same boat. And when I look around at people's uh, advertisements for other martial arts, you know, you know, self-defense is is high up on the list if not the first thing which is mentioned and i got interested in self-defense so i had a little bit of spare time when i was in japan and i started researching about it and one of the first sites i got to was called the no nonsense selfdefense.com webpage and this is about 19 i don't know when that was probably about the year 2000. i was gonna say that had to be late 90s yeah, late night, yeah. And I went, well, that's a bit of a strange name and a very long web address to type in. And then I got to the landing page and it said Mark Animal McYoung. And I was like, well, that's a bit of a crazy name. 
okay well all right well i'll see what i'll see what you know i'll see what the animal is saying and i started to read and i think the tagline is you know if you visit this site you know get, get a cup of coffee because you might be here for some time and that was an absolute underestimate it's it's the it's an unbelievable resource on um self on, on martial arts and on on violence and self-defense self-protection and i i loved it and i still love it i think one of my absolute mentors in life is is uh is dr chappelle and then another mentor of mine is uh mark mcyoung or mark animal mcyoung and his wife diane they're just amazing people and very comprehensive very very deep dive into what is self-defense um and it doesn't take long of studying what is self-defense to realize that most stuff in martial arts uh clubs is not teaching self-defense in my opinion um they're, they're they're teaching you know the the stomp on the head until they're dead type or flying kicks to kick samurais or horses type or or shout out to enter the dojo yeah exactly then to the end and you know that you know there's so i love self-defense that's what i also research and 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 that's a very interesting thing you know to understand that why people get attacked how you can minimize yourself your chances of being attacked um, how you can defend yourself and you know most importantly how can you defend yourself that it works and keeps you out of um you know keeps you out of the legal system yeah that, that's a big 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 topic to to break into and i know you've actually given a series of seminar uh, lectures on that too right that's right yeah so i just last just last year um a friend of mine um, adam jenkinson uh, from all, access all areas japan he's uh, an event producer and organizer for just massive events he, he'll do things for example the rugby world cup um came to japan last year Ma massive sports festival and he was there filming and organizing the uh, the opening draw you know when they're working it out so they've got the prime minister abe from japan there and all these kind of people like that so you know Adam does amazing events. And then he said to me, I'm thinking of buying this new camera. Um, you know, why don't you do some of your self-defense stuff? And then we'll, you know, we'll make, uh, we'll make a DVD out of it. I was like, okay, well, this is great. And then he said, okay, well, okay, I'm free in about two weeks. I'm, I'm free in two weeks. So, um, you know, we'll do it then. So then I had two weeks of massive kind of like, okay, I need to get back, get up to speed. And what am I going to say? What do you mean a DVD in two weeks? and then he it was amazing so he sent me through some some spreadsheets which were okay this is the shot count and it was like you know what you're gonna say what part of the body you know it was this there's about 20 things going on and i'm like well i don't know because i'm not a professional i'm not in the media business but i'll be able to stand up and and i said look i can't go with this professional way of doing it but what i'll do is i'll give you my uh my powerpoint and uh, a script and then I'll, I'll i'll just ab lib it as we go along and that's what i did um and we went down to to a really nice um hotel in tokyo i can't mention the name but it's one of the best hotels there and one of the, and the manager there gave us a room he said okay you work on that 
that's fine. It's because it's for the public good. So we had this massive room. We set up, we set up, um, you know, twelve different cam, twelve different lights and sounds and all sorts of professional equipment there. And and then that was it. We started talking about, you know, what is self-defense? How, how do you protect yourself? And and in, in a nutshell, self-defense is about not being not allowing the situation to escalate. Um, the classic question I always get asked by people if they find out I do martial arts, and I'm sure everybody else who does martial arts has the same question, is have you ever used it for real? And I look at them, I say, yes, of course. I said, I use it every second of the day. And they look at me and they go, what do you mean? And I said, look, I mean, self-defense is all about awareness or war um so it's self-defense is all about awareness avoidance and de-escalation deterrence and then finally the fighting could come in or the the self-defense um it's got many parts to it uh, i've been in many situations where i've walked into into like a, into a bar into a pub and i've walked straight out again because this is not a good place to be awareness is something that the martial arts i think all martial arts teach you they teach you body awareness you're more aware of what your body is doing and if you're working out in it doing kata or in a group class you become aware of what the other students are doing so your spatial awareness improves this will help you in self-defense also your awareness helps you when for example you walk into a bar and it's it's got a bad vibe to it and then you can walk out and that's really the essence, you know, one of the essence of self-defense. A, a great book on that subject would be Gavin DeBecker's The Gift of Fear. Um, and this book explains about how to honor and trust your instincts, your intuition. Um, he calls it the gift of fear because that feeling you get is your body saying, OK, you, you know, this is a dangerous situation. You need to be out of here. So. So awareness is, is very, very, very important. Um, and then the next really thing to look at is different types of violence. Um, and there's a guy called uh, Rory Miller. Rory Miller wrote, has written some amazing books on self-defense. His first book, Meditations on Violence, absolute classic. And he breaks down violence into two categories, uh, social violence and a social violence and social violence is um, all about people jockeying for position they're guarding territory um, you know who's who on the pecking order it's when you go to and you, you're the new kid in a, in a new school and everybody's kind of sussing you out to say okay where is this person you know are we going to bully him is he going to bully us is he a jock is he or whatever and that's all part of social violence. This is where bullying comes in. Um, and that's one type of violence. And then the, an opposite type of violence is asocial violence, sometimes called criminal violence. And this is where the victims is not important. They just pretty much they hold something that the attacker wants. It would be an iPhone, a wallet, shoes. They might, might want some physical uh, something from you or 
they want to do things to you. You know, they want, they enjoy hurting you, they enjoy raping you, they enjoy killing you, etc. Uh, and these types of predators are very rare, but of course, very dangerous. So Rory, Rory Miller came up with this beautiful model to describe the two. And I believe I'm quoting him or using his analogy. He said, um, he said, asocial violence, it's like when a mosquito lands on your wrist, you just, you just smash it, kill it, destroy it. You don't think about it. You don't have to work yourself up to it. You just do it. That is asocial violence. Um, scary stuff. My Google foo says you are correct with that quote. <laughs> Good stuff. So Rory wrote some brilliant stuff. And then in the social violence, he came up with another wonderful expression, uh, which, which is the monkey dance. And this is the kind of uh, mano to mano violence where, you know, chest to chest, you know, what are you looking at? You're looking at me, this type of violence. And, um, and of course, humans are, you know, we're primates and we follow the kind of same kind of behavior as, as monkeys, as Desmond Morris said in his book, you know, man watching back in the days. So it was a beautiful way of looking at social violence, the, the monkey dance, and also what's called the group monkey dance. And, you know, with with the political situation around the world over the last couple of years, people have, uh, are very aware about how mobs uh, can turn uh, mobs and rioting. These type of uh, these types of um, situations could be very very dangerous. And one way of looking at that is, as Polly says, a, a group monkey dance. So Rory Miller is being very, um, again, another amazing. Resource if you want to study self production, self protection. So you have Mark McYoung and you have Rory Miller. They've really been the two uh, major influences on my work on self protection, especially from the American side. If we move to England, we have uh, Jeff Thompson. And Jeff Thompson, um, another fantastic martial artist, and he worked as in a nightclub bouncer or a doorman for about 10 years in a very rough place. Um, getting into fights every night. And he wrote some very good books, again, about the realities of fighting and the realities of adrenaline. And this is, a, again, it's something that martial artists need to investigate if they're, if they're serious about the top protection. So as you can tell, I'm, I'm a bit of a reader. I like to, I like to, I like to go in and research these subjects, and and when you do that, you, you know you you just get more information, and you find out that, like in most sciences, people will have similar terminology. You know, they'll well they'll be talking about the same types of phenomena. You know, um, the top people in in the fields. Um, and that's something that martial artists need to investigate because there is this philosophy that okay, I've just got to I've just got to knock him out, just hit him to the ground. He attacked me. I can do whatever I want. Better to be carried by, you know, what is it? Judged tried by, by twelve. Yeah, tried by twelve rather than carried by six. By six. You know, and and it's you know it all sounds quite 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 cool. 
But when you look at the consequences of real world violence, then you realize that it, it, it's, it, it, it sets you up for a very, very bad life, potentially. Um, so, and that is magnified by living in, for me, living in Japan. So in Japan, the court system has, I believe, about a 99% conviction rate. That was nine point, like 99 is in 99 out of 100? 99 out of 100, yeah. Ow. It's probably higher. Wow. <laughs> can get that. That's probably just somebody who died before they could be convicted. <laughs> and the police powers here in, in Japan are awesome now whatever you want to read into that word awesome you can it has many different potential meanings to that but for example for 14 probably 14 days they the police can hold you um, in a cell you no friends your lawyer can sometimes visit you i think you get one visit from your lawyer and one visit from your family member a day um, you're interrogated without your lawyer and at all times of day and night. And then after those 14 days, about 14 days, the police can go to the judge and say, look, we really need another 10 days. And the judges will go, oh, okay. So you're talking about 20, about 24 days, 23, 24 days, you can be off the street, bang. And, and that can be from anything from, you know, not paying your bill in a coffee shop to a pushing, shoving match the consequences of being um, taken by the police are huge. Now, in that time, um, you've normally lost your job because Japanese contracts have a clause, if you bring the workplace into disrepute, that's, uh, you know, we can immediately terminate you. So, you know, you lose your job. You quite often lose your marriage, you know, because <laughs> so, you've lost your job and then your marriage goes straight after that. Uh, it's so... The, the consequences of, of, of you know, having a, you know, a fist fight in Japan are just incredible, which it's not the case in England. You know, case in England, that's, it's different. Even in the States, I don't think in the States they'll throw me away for 24 days. You know? Yeah, you and better have really, really done that, some weird things to get locked up for 24 days. Yeah. That's you're, right. You're probably already you know, guilty the, before you even get to the trial. Yes. Uh, and then in those 24 days, you know, that's when the confessions get signed and that's where you get your, um, you know, 99% conviction rate. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting place. It's uh, Japan. So again, you want to stay out of trouble as much as you can. So that's it. But um, I met, um, I met a very interesting person in Japan. He's called Hasei and he's a, uh, his family is Hasakura, and Hasakura is one of the most famous samurai families in Japan. Um, his ancestor went to see the Pope, was sent uh, to you know, see the Pope, and you can see pictures of him in Italian dress, you know, in, I think about the 16th century. Uh, Hasakura Sunanaga, I believe his name was, you know, he's got, a, he's got the samurai sword and this kind of Italian court dress, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, Google Foo says you're right um, on that one too. Yeah, good, good. To that. And so his family from that time, you know, he's and he, he's 
they've always been samurai families. So even when the samurai stopped, they were still a military family immersed in that, in that, um, in that culture. So learning their own style of martial arts, their family style of martial arts. So uh, I'd speak to him. He was a great guy. He's really interesting guy. Uh, became a policeman, but he very much liked the hands-on part of policing. He was he had the skills and the abilities to uh, you know take on pretty much anybody he wanted. <laughs> so, but it, so it's really cool. So he was able to you know he wasn't you know he literally wasn't phased if he had like yakuza guys coming up to him with with short swords trying to stab him, and now he's like okay. You know, I'll just no problems. Just I'll just I'll just disable you, and then we'll cuff you up, and we'll take you away, or we'll take you to the hospital to get stitched up, and then we'll take you away, and then <laughs> is and so you'd think he'd be kind of like you know this real gung ho guy, and you know really dangerous. I mean, extraordinarily dangerous guy, really really nice guy, and I think. Again, in self-defense, one of the lessons that he taught me, he was called to the local port, and I think it was a Russian ship had docked, and the crew members had gone ashore, had a huge party, and, you know, everybody's having a good time, and then they go to pay the bill, and they go to pay the bill in dollars, and then the guy, and Japan at the time, were not very friendly, were not very friendly to different uh, currencies, you know, it was very much Japanese yen or nothing. No credit cards, you know. It was cat. It was a cash society, and dollars, you know. No, thank you. And so the captain of the boat was going, "Well, we've got money. We're paying." And then the the bar owner was going, "Well, you're not paying. I'm calling the police." And then my friend Hasse arrives, and this is kind of a standoff. You had the kind of the the restaurant staff on one side and all the the sailors on the other side. And it's getting a little bit heated. And then Hasse went into him and, he, and, and asked, you know, what's the problem? And they said, well, you know, they won't take my money. And then, okay, well, what is it? Well, I've got dollars. And he was like, okay. He went to the owner, how much is the bill? And it's about, you know, $200 about. And he said, okay. Went back to the captain. He says, right, I'll buy your dollars off you and sell you yen. Okay, so he bought the money, you know, they worked out the exchange rate, he bought the dollars, he gave them the yen, the yen went to the bar manager and everybody went away happy. And that really, again, is the essence of martial arts, is that the fighting without fighting. You know, you know it would have been very easy to go in there and smash heads, and but that's not what serious martial artists are all about, in my opinion. And so, and, you know, Hassi's a great guy and he's he's got all these beautiful swords and then he said well don why don't you get a sword i said oh, you know as you know i uh, my decision making is quite rapid i said oh that'd be a good idea <laughs> why not why we everybody needs a sword right yeah that was good and my wife comes from a samurai family in her history as well i thought oh that'd be nice it'll honor her family and uh, you know and then my you know and i'm do the kempo side and, yeah that sounds good and so i got a um yeah, I had I have a handmade sword um, here in uh, Miyagi, made by one of the best swordsmiths. Beautiful, beautiful blade. Uh, all the all the parts, sword parts, are all handmade. Well, some of them are handmade, and some of them are from the Edo period. They're antiques. Um, and then the suit, which is super cool. 
the the suba, which is the sword guard, is kind of the yeah, it's the hand dish. guard, yeah, the hand guard, yes. And I I took in the um, the universal pattern from or Ed Parker's universal pattern. I said, can you can you make me a a hand guard using this? So oh, you got to show handmade. me a picture of that at some point. Oh yeah, it's, yes, it's it's pretty awesome. That's, yeah, I want to see that. <laughs> so that that's there, and and then the uh, habaki, which is the kind of collar, um, fits on top of you know between yeah, the, the collar cap uh, that holds the blade the, the and, the and the blade on it. Yeah. Oh yes, you, you know your sword stuff, and so that was handmade by again another expert. You know, top-ranked guy in, in Japan, and then on, on one side it's got my wife's family crest. That's awesome. Um, so that's on one side, and then on the other side has got my wife's family's boss's family crest. So I, I'm a little disappointed. I've never seen it. this sword before. Now you're gonna really gonna have to show me some pictures of this thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you opened up a Pandora's so, box now. It's it, it's pretty awesome. So, you know, I've got the the you know the subo or the hangard that that commemorates my kempo experiences and training. The uh, the collar is commemorates my family's my wife's family's history. And then the, yeah, the the sword itself is just unbelievable. So it, it was a wonderful thing which I wouldn't have got. You know, if I hadn't started in the martial arts, I wouldn't have met this person. And I hadn't come to Japan, I wouldn't have met this person. And we'd go off, and the guy, my swordsmith, he he's a farmer, and he makes swords in his garden shed, which is a tiny garden shed, not much bigger than, like, a, a pickup truck, maybe twice the size of a pickup truck, little shed in his garden. And I remember going in one day, and it's, it's kind of dark, there's no lights there, or you hadn't done the lights. And he was, he was going to light a candle or something, or a burn or something. And, and the one was amazing, because he just picked up a piece of metal and a hammer. He just beated it about three or four times. It went red hot, put the paper to the, to the red hot metal, it lit up, and then lit the candle. And I was like, wow. That was cool. Like, <laughs> you know, they say that, you know, you... You know, a master can show it in their every every action. And I was like, okay, yeah, we need fire. Bang, bang, bang. Here's fire. And I'm like, wow. And well uh, said. So that was good. And you know, it's designed to my uh, dimensions. And you know, it's got the 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 tang. The end bit has got you know, it's all signed by him, and it's got the date on it. And it's 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 all it's all really cool. Um, yeah. Mr. Hayasaka is his name. It's interesting because he has a professional sword making name, um, which was the name of his who he was an apprentice under. And he said, "Do you want do you want my do you want my you know my 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 famous name on here?" I said, "Well, why don't you put your name on there?" He was like, "Oh, okay." Pom 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 pom. That was cool. Nice. It's a pretty cool sword. Nice. So, so Hasse is good, and, and he tells, teaches me about you know samurai history and battles and and you know and, and how things really were in combat because that's where the stories from his father to his grandfather, they were all they were all fighters, they were all all warriors, um, and it's interesting to give you an idea of 
So the seiza, which is how you sit down with your, with your legs kind of tucked beneath you. It's a very traditional kind of Japanese kneeling position. And the first time I was, I met Hase and I was, he was showing me some stuff. I, I, I sat down in the seiza position when I still could, when I was still young. And, um, <laughs> and he looked at me and, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm in the, you know, the Japanese seiza position. He's like, well, why? And I said, well, you know, that's what you do, isn't it, in the martial arts? And he's like, he said to me, he said, no, no, that's the position for the peasants. He said, it's not for the samurai. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you put them in the seiza position, you give them a little kick in the kidney, arches their neck, and then you can take their head off. Good to know. <laughs> so, I was like, good. good to know. So, <laughs> So we have all these kind of mad conversations like this. And you know, he, he was showing me how the samurai sit in a slightly different way so that they can immediately stand up quickly and and attack or defend themselves. So, you know, my he, he'd be sitting there in my living room and we'd be taking apart a sword and telling me the stories. And my wife would come in, listen to us for a little bit about, you know, and this is how you assassinate the daimyo. And, you know, and then she'd give us a cup of tea and then... <laughs> You know, another one of your crazy uh, Kempo friends or martial art friends. <laughs> I would imagine she's pretty used to that by now. Yeah, she was. I mean, and she did very well. I mean, she 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 got to her brown belt level in, and with the BKKU, the brown belt, like in probably quite a few different clubs, it's it's a very physical grading. You have to do six. I think it's six two-minute rounds, continuous rounds. You don't get a break. And everybody you spar is basically by belt or above, and and they get better and better and better as you get tighter and tighter and tighter. So it's designed basically to wear you out to where you you believe you can physically go no further, and it's not minutes to go. And so that's that's it's a real we believe, and I believe strongly in in martial arts. Uh, you know where skill, you know. Um, Skill and experience runs out. Guts and determination take over. You've, you've got to have that that fighting spirit, the the ability to just keep going no matter what. And I think that's a, a very important part of of um, martial science, of of the martial arts as well. That kind of brought me to a question on that same topic. I was going to ask it earlier, and then we just kind of kept going through uh, all the piece of history here, and it kind of brought me back now to this thing. So. Uh, you mentioned earlier with your students, you've seen where sometimes you ask them that simple question, they can give you the answer directly and it's fine. And then you put up in front of the class and it's just, you know, blank stare, deer in the headlights. So how do you see the parallels of stress inoculation between martial training and between teaching English, for example? It's a, it's a great question. Um, so, for example, for my students... I will, if I'm teaching them to get to do a presentation, maybe just, uh, you know, speak a, a paragraph, say, for example, a short paragraph, you know, where they're from, what they like to do, uh, what's their favorite food, etc. It's a very simple piece of English. I take one of the techniques that uh, Dr. Chappelle taught me, which is the perfect repetition, the theory of, of zero sum and perfect repetition. And what this means, and the way I adapt it is I give my students zero points and I, I say, okay, 
you have to say the first sentence of your introduction. If you if if it's perfect, you get one point. And, and then you have to do it again. If you get two points, you can now go on to the to and do two sentences. And then you go back to zero points. And then if you do it perfectly again, now you're on to the third sentence. And now you're on to the fourth sentence. And that puts a lot of stress on because if they make a mistake, they've suddenly lost a point. And that brings them down to say one or zero or minus one. And if they go to minus two, they need to step out and go back and, and retrain that in their own time. And just doing that will create a tremendous amount of stress for people. Um, I mean, it was even difficult the first time I did it. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, my name is Ah. ah. <laughs> so it's so simple things like that you can do. It doesn't have to involve um, you know physically beating somebody. It's putting the pressure on them. And this zero-sum game is a wonderful game. Um, I actually, in language learning, I'll tweak it. So I'll start at the end of the presentation. Um, it's something we call backwards chaining. I think it's a really good teaching thing. Now, normally, for example, if you're learning a kata or a form in a martial arts, you're really good at the beginning, and then you kind of tail off maybe towards the end because you haven't had so many repetitions. Um, so, and that's common in, in teaching English as well. They'll start off really well and then they'll kind of tail off towards the end of their presentation. So if you start at the end of the presentation, you know, thank you very much for listening to me today. That's the end of my talk. Thank you very much for listening to me today. You start off from the end, working your way to the top using this zero sum repetition, you can stress inoculate them and then they'll to to um, say the speech wonderfully well um, so you literally that's, start that's one thing and then you just start adding a piece onto it every time you do another rep of it you just go back another piece yeah so it'll be like say you had 10 segments it'll be like you start with 10 and then it'll be 9 10 and then 8 9 10 it's like a reverse 7 pyramid. 8 9 10 and by the time the beauty of it is by the time as the students start, they're normally good at the start, but as they get towards the end, they'll actually get better and better and better because they've had more repetitions, they're more confident. And so they can, you know, so that the middle of it will be very strong and the end of it will be very strong. And it's, it's a really interesting way of teaching. Um, you could teach a form like that if you wanted to, or a technique like that. It's, it's another way of looking at it. Um, so, yeah, just reverse stack everything, and it's yeah. It's, I've used a similar concept. I just haven't broken it out that way. That's a really, really great way to break that out. Thank you. Yeah, great. And then thank you. And uh, one of the ways for, for example, forms competition is Angelo Collado. I think his name is. He's uh, uh he was famous for doing very, very well in the forms competitions in in the Long Beach Internationals. And he. He wrote a beautiful piece about how he used to prepare stress testing for um, for his forms competitions. And one of the things he would do was the form had like different segments, you know, maybe 10 parts. And he'd, he would sit down in the chair and he would get somebody just to call out, OK, segment two. And he would have to stand up immediately and do that part of the form. OK, now segment seven. Boom. You'd have to stand up and do that part. Or he would be engaged in conversation with somebody. 
uh, whilst doing the form. And then they would say, stop at a random time, continue the conversation, then you'd have to go back and continue the form. So really uh, turning around, facing different angles, you know, doing it fast, doing it slow, um, all, all these sorts of things are ways of stress inoculating yourself. Um, and that's and that's what it is. And and especially for if you have a presentation to give or a uh, martial art performance to give, getting into the room is very important. As in, what, what I mean by that is, you know, physically getting into the room and seeing where the judges will sit, where the audience is, um, because many people are very good at doing their material and they subconsciously reference everything to the dojo or the the room they're in and when that goes then they can be disorientated so you need to kind of reorientate you and, and anchor in these these areas so there, there's good things for stress inoculation yeah my first instructor used to make me do all of my katas and when i got them down the first direction okay 90 degree turn got them down that direction 90 degree turn so we went around the circle you know got got four directions got eight directions and then he'd have me jump up and spin around in the air. Whatever angle I, I found it landing at is that's my starting direction. Awesome. That got weird. But yeah. You know, once you get off those eight directions, all of a sudden your reference points go completely out the window. So yeah, that those are fun. I, I can appreciate those drills a lot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that, that's what it is. It, it, it helps you. you know, the more the more you train, the more stress you can put in on, onto your training. Um and that's why I believe, and I think it was a minority view, I don't know if it is or not, but I believe that Carter training, forms training is excellent stress inoculation. And why do I think that is because it's everybody, well, everybody should know who's watching, knows what comes next and what you're meant to do. And so they can, they can know if you've made a mistake or not made a mistake. So that puts a, a lot of pressure on. When you're doing more self-defense technique work, it's a little bit kind of like, well, you know, you, you can fudge that in, in most martial arts because people don't know what's coming next. Yeah, it's supposed to go this way, and he moved funky, so I adapted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's good. And that, that's one of, so that was good. And it wasn't until I got to training at martial science university with Dr. Chappelle that that attention to detail, which used to be on the forms, got moved to moving within the tech well everything i did but the techniques as well so it became the same thing people watching knew what was coming next and how you were explicitly meant to perform it so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, built-in stress training there so we went through a whole lot of different pieces of that whole self-defense concept one of the ones we really haven't touched on yet is the de-escalation component can we talk a little bit about that Absolutely, yeah. De-escalation is, is really important. Um, De-escalation is very good for social violence, which we talked about earlier. And that's, you know, a typical argument. You end up with some kind of conflict with somebody. So de-escalate. I mean, you know what the escalator does? It, it brings you closer to violence and the de-escalator brings you closer to safety. Now, there's a lot of words you can say in the middle of an argument and some of them will explode the argument into physical contact immediately and then some of them won't and a great system for learning the ones which will not explode <laughs> make it safer 
is uh, Jeff Thompson. And Jeff Thompson created a, an amazing system called Verbal Judo. And I recommend everybody to go out and investigate this system. Um, it's hands down the best one I, I've seen. It can be used professionally if you're in law enforcement or sales in your customer interactions. Uh, but more importantly, it can just be used in your, your daily life. George Thompson used to talk about verbal karate being the words that the natural language that you want to say, like, you know, what are you looking at? You know, well, I don't know, man. You know, who are you looking at? All well, this is kind of verbal karate. But verbal judo is a way of de-escalating the situation. Normally there's a problem and he would work in a, a five-step way of, of, of solving this problem. The first thing he would do would be ask somebody, uh, ask somebody to do something. You know, can, can you uh, please stop shouting at me, for example, if you're in an argument. And then nice people will say, oh, I'm sorry, of course. And then the other people will go, no, why? And then you give them a reason why. Well, when you're shouting at me, it's making me feel uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, it's hard to communicate with you. And then they might say, well, I'm still going to shout at you. And then you can give them these these choices. And it's interesting. He always recommends to give the positive choice first, which is kind of seems counterintuitive. You normally give the threat first and then the kind of like the good thing. But he always said, always, always, always lead with the the with with the gift. You know, you know, you know, if you stop um, shouting, then we can work this out and I'm sure we can solve your problem. And and if you don't don't stop shouting, then I'm gonna have to call school uh, store security, for example. So you've given them that either or. And then the next step, when they're going, well, yeah, call the security. I don't care. The next step is is when you you give them a, a second chance. You say, look, basically, is anything is there anything I can say, anything I can do to you know help help you stop shouting? And then some might some might come back. Well, well, if you say pretty please, you know, if you ask me nicely, then then you know, but then you've got a way of 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 um, you know de-escalating this problem. And if they say no at that stage, that's the limit. You've then that last question is the limit question. It's a it's a binary to, to action. Now, whatever that action is, whether it's you leaving the room, whether that's you calling somebody else, or whatever the action is. I mean, the verbal judo is a very interesting system. That's one of its tools. It also talks about taking the ego out of the situation. Um, so especially, I mean, I now work in a university, I represent my university. If I have a problem with a student, then it's not the student against Dom Jones. I need to take Dom Jones out of the equation, that it, I'm no longer there. It's just, I'm just a representative of the university. And, you know, I'm not getting mad. It's just the university. And then, so that's a very interesting advice. And there's lots and lots and lots of advice in the verbal judo system, and I, I think it's excellent um, and well worth well worth um, understanding. And that is de that is de-escalation. Awesome. One word which is limited re related to that we talked about was de deterrence. So de-escalation works for social violence, but you don't 
negotiate with somebody who is criminally attacking you or about to criminally attack you. Um, so you know, being polite to them is probably the opposite. They will actually think it's safer to attack you. But what you can do is deter. And deter is basically saying you're a hard target. If they attack you, then it's going to be, a, it's going to be hard work for them. So they'll move along to find a safer vi victim. Yeah, you didn't stop them, but they just chose a different target. So there's a big difference between deterrence and de-escalation. And you want to make sure that you're not trying to de-escalate a crime, for example. So what resources would you recommend for learning how to deal with each of these individual components of self-defense? Obviously, uh, like training in martial arts is a good way to do the physical portion of it. But how do you get the training for the other components? Well, I mean, I, I love reading. Um, and so I'd recommend going to Mark McYoung's website and spending a couple of weeks or more reading up about you know, his, his theories. And that will give you a much broader understanding understanding about a lot of these issues in self-protection and in violence. Another person to to get information about reading is Rory Miller on his website, which I think is Chiron Training. And he has a reading list and I've bought nearly every book he recommends. And there's some excellent books. Um, books like um, Values for a New Millennium is, is a wonderful book. And this book helps you to understand different cultures. The basic premise is people are not crazy. So if you see somebody doing something crazy, there's probably a good reason in their mind why they're doing it. And if you can ask the right questions, you can find out well. Um, and an example from that book was about a dog. Uh, um, he saw he saw these locals in Southeast Asia kicking this dog, just kicking it off the street and hated it because, you know, he's, he's like, you know, you've got to be nice to animals. He's an animal lover. And then he's like, OK, well, I better find out, you know, what, are they just, are they just sadistic or is there a reason for this? And the reason was that these wild dogs were nearly always uh, rabid, you know, rabies. And so, um, you know, you had to get rid of these dogs. Otherwise, you know, they could seriously or even kill you. So when you when you find out the reason, then you can you can start to understand. And that's a, being able that empathy. As um, George Thompson says, tactical empathy, you know, the, the, it's, it's a good way of, of understanding the people you're with. And, and, and then you can get to, you can you can usually deescalate these situations. So I, as you already said a couple of times, you're definitely a reader and you've gotten everything off of Rory Miller's uh, reading list. Uh, what else would you recommend as far as like what's else in your library? Are there any personal favorites that you would recommend anybody who's serious about learning self-defense or serious about self-protection to actually, you know, invest in and read? Yeah, I think the more, you know, it doesn't cost any blood to, to read and it can save a lot of your blood. And, and others. So I think there's a the, the payoff is very to get research. Knowledge is power, gives you more choices. Now, what type of books would I recommend? Um, a little bit biased, uh, the Infinite Insight series from um, Ed Parker. It was written in about the about beginning of the 80s. I think it, 
And, it, you know, it talks a lot about self-defense and it also talks a lot about the environment being very, very important and the, this awareness and avoidance is very, very important. As well as understanding uh, how to look at the, the martial arts in a more scientific way. For mindset, uh, one of the classic books is uh, On Killing by Dave Grossman. It's got a bit of a gruesome title, uh, but it's a, it's not really a gruesome book. It's a very interesting book. And he talks about humans have a natural preclusion uh, against violence. We don't like to use violence on other people. Um, so that's a very interesting book to, to, to learn that about violence. Um, he also wrote a book called Bulletproof Mind, which is using the using your mental training to strengthen your mind for to help keep you safe. And that's absolutely essential. Um, making decisions about what levels of force you are comfortable with or prepared to to use needs to be done before that use of force incident. You don't want to be thinking, do I really want to be breaking his arm because I might lose my job in those 23 days? And yeah, I know he's got a knife and it's coming right towards me, but you know, I like my job. And you don't want to be in uh, having those conversations. It, it wants to be beforehand. You meditate on it. You think deeply about it and, and, and come to acceptance about what, what levels of force you're, you're interested in. This might be quite a new um, idea. Now, for people involved in the firearms industry, then, well, hopefully it's not such a new idea, um, being that their use of force is so much higher. Oh, yeah, that, that's definitely a topic we discuss quite often in the firearms industry. It's, you know, who are you willing to spend the rest of your life in a jail cell for? So, exactly. That's really what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, you know, the classic Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, so, so reading is, is, a, is a good way. Uh, Dave Grossman uh, writes some fantastic books. Um, Jeff Thompson from England has written some wonderful books like um, Dead or Alive is, is, was, was his classic book. And I also, I like just lots of different books. One of the books that Roy Miller recommended is called um, Achilles in Vietnam. I think, you know, maybe he didn't recommend it actually. But it's a beautiful book, Achilles in Vietnam, and it talks about, it really looks at Homer's classic play. Um, and it talks about, and the parallel of the, the Trojan War with the Vietnam War and reinterprets the plays written. And it talks a lot about um, some of the causes of post-traumatic stress, for example. It's a very interesting book. Google Foo says that was Jonathan Shea for that one, correct? I can't remember, uh, I can't remember his name, but I, I'm... I... Achilles in Vietnam, Combat Trauma and the Undoing of Character? Yes, that would be the one. Perfect, yeah, Jonathan yes. Shea. Gotta love Google Foo. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's good. Excellent books. Um, then, away from the martial arts, particularly then books like uh, with NLP, neuro linguistic programming. Um, I went right back to the structure of magic, which were one and two, which were the original books 
um, written about uh, neurolinguistic programming. Both really, really interesting books. And then for if you want to get for communication and de-escalation, then just your communication skills. Organizations like Toastmasters will teach you um, how to organize your thoughts, how to speak, um, control your, your nerves. And these are great whether you're giving a presentation at work or if you're de-escalating or deterring somebody um, outside of work. So those are the types of books um, I recommend. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, That's a quite extensive list just to get started with. Yeah, yeah, it's um, and of course, so I, I should mention uh, Mark McYoung's books, which are wonderful. He has um, some excellent books, uh, for example, In the Name of Self-Defense. And this book is talking about how people are so often surprised that they quote unquote defend themselves on the street and then how come are they getting arrested or, you know, what's going on? I, you know, I only, you know, I defended myself. And, you know, he will talk a lot about the, the legal system and the realities of um, self-protection. So any book by Mark McYoung is is wonderful. And I and I really recommend that. Right on. OK, so just because I like to ask all of our guests some some oddball question at some point, I'm going to throw this one at you. So I know you spend a, a majority of your time in your martial side of your training in the self-defense sciences. But I also know you've trained in a whole bunch of other things, you know, throughout your career as well, just, you know, passing fancy here just because it interests you. What about the the traditional Japanese martial arts have really called you that it's something that you really dig learning? Uh, so, no, it's an interesting question. I think that with the with the traditional Japanese martial arts, I'm really referencing my friend Hasek and his family style of jiu-jitsu, his family style of um, of using using the sword. I think it's um, even down to shurikens. I mean, the shurikens that he uses are about eight inches long, kind of solid steel, and you kind of you just throw them into people. That's a big shuriken. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's designed to yeah. So again, it's designed as a weapon to to kill or to neutralize somebody, as opposed to the more traditional kind of Chinese kind of throwing stars, which kind of irritate you. So, um, so it's interesting. So I like what he talks about that, and uh, you know, we talked about the bow and his his stories of sword fighting, and how you know Japanese blades are are relatively weak. And so in the movies, you always see them, the blades hitting blade to blade to make this nice sound. And, you know, that's just, it's like, you know, the blade should be hitting, you know, it's designed to, to cut through the body. And you know, that's, that's what it's designed for and that's what it's good at. So, so I'm more interested in the, the combat, for want of a bit, or how the uh, martial arts were used in combat um, in Japan. And that's what my friend Hase um, since he was a boy, he was training, being trained in the use of various martial art weapons uh, from a combat perspective. So that's the arts that typically end in jutsu rather than end in do. For example, um, kendo. 
with Do, yeah, it's like like Judo or Kendo, example Kudo. Um, but talking of Kendo, where you have a wooden sword or bamboo sword, a Shinai, and it's very lateral. You go up and down is the way that it's taught. And as he was, as he learned in, from his family style, you need to get offline as soon as you can. Um, and you're also hitting in places which, which you wouldn't hit in kendo. So that, that's conditioning you to hit to the, you know, the, the chest, the hands, the head. Um, so, that, so that was very, very interesting. So I'm interested in that. I, I, he showed me some of his jiu-jitsu uh, movements from his family. And he has a very different mindset. So he has a combat, uh, combat mindset. So I brought him to class one day and I was showing him a, a full Nelson uh, attack. And he looked at it and he went, oh, okay. Oh, is this what you want to do? And he, and he put his hands around and he went, and he just kind of, kind of just jammed down with his head on the, uh, both his hands on the top of the guy's head. And my student's neck was like, like millimeters away from snapping. And it was like, no, there was no, there's no give. He was no kind of, he wasn't teaching you how to do something. He was just like <laughs> taking people out. Yeah, right from zero to 11. We skipped 10 on the way over there. <laughs> yeah, zero to 11, you know, this, the sleeper technique was, yeah, my student just hit the, was, you know, he'd hit the ground pretty much unconscious straight away. <laughs> you know, I was teaching it by, like, you know, one of my new students, I was teaching it by the numbers, you know, like, you know, one, two, three, four, five, gently increase the pressure, wait for the tap. And he just went, shoop, full on, straight out, <laughs> down. Okay, now we got to wake Joe up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I love it, but uh, he's he's not a teacher, unfortunately, at the moment. He's very much into the into the, the doing, in the application. This is what I do. Um, but we've we've had some fun. We've got to, had to, a lot a lot of fun, a lot of fun tra uh, traveling, and and training together. Um, okay, so the Japanese up. arts are are wonderful. Are wonderful. I mean, um, it's interesting. The martial arts in England, when I are much more popular than they are in Japan. In, in Japan, it's I think the martial arts are a bit like playing chess. So if you play chess in England, people go, "Oh, that's really nice. Well done. You must be quite intellectual." And then they'll just that's it, and that's kind of like the Japanese version of the martial arts. Wow, you do martial arts. That's wonderful. You must be very spiritual. And then. But if you ask them, have they ever done the martial arts? They're like, no. So there's a much more exposure to the martial arts in England and America than there are than than there is in Japan. Everybody listening, take note because that flies in the face of every movie that's been produced for the last forty years. <laughs> <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. There's some very hardcore schools here, but it's uh, Japanese people tend to do. They commit to one activity. And that's it. So, you know, if you meet a Japanese person who says, I play the piano, then you know their concert standard. You know, if they say, oh, I do a little bit of running, you know, that's ultra marathons. It's, there, there's nothing, nothing is, they do one thing or one thing really, really, really well. So that's uh, an, interesting, an interesting part about Japanese psyche. That was really cool. I just learned something new. 
So I, I really, really do appreciate your time. You've given me you know, quite a bit of time for this interview, and it's been so much fun to do so. But I don't want to take up more, you know, that much more of your day for you. I know you're 17 hours ahead of me over there in Japan. So I would like to give you the moment here for what I call the plug your stuff section. So that's our, as we're wrapping up here, if people want to find your presentations on self-defense or if they want to find, you know, articles that you've written or products that you've worked with or stuff like that, where would they go to find that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, thanks, Steve. Yeah. I've done a few a few things over the years. Um, for example, I did a, um, a TEDx uh, for Tokyo teachers uh, under the topic of martial science. And that was explaining how to use the scientific method and apply it to martial art training. This was information and inspired by the, you know, the works of um, Dr. Dr. Chappelle from the Martial Science University. Uh, you can find that um, a link on that on my website, which is www.joenick.com. And you'll find on that website, you'll find my academic papers, which have been published. And there'll be links for the uh, video presentations or radio presentations that, that, I've, that I've done. And that's jonesdominic.com, correct? That's right. Yeah. J-O-N-E-S. I-N-I-C, Dom. So since we're getting a little bit of lag coming through on that, I'll make sure I put the website address and stuff like that in our uh, blurb for your episode. Make it easy. Perfect. Last year in Tokyo, I produced a, um, a four-part DVD. Um, and again, if you go to the uh, my, my webpage, you will find links to that, uh, which is also found on YouTube. And then this this web um this dvd is all about what is self-defense so i talk about the mainly the theory of theoretical background of self-defense as well as demonstrating some physical moves for some common attacks like um elliptical ruptures or somebody coming in for a tackle or a bear hug um they were a lot of fun to make and um yeah there's, there's some good content on there um and what else is what else have I done? There's, uh, well, obviously, you know, Steve's podcast. I'm sure we'll get some links onto that. It'll be on my, my website. Um, and I, I did a, another long interview for you know, Active English, where I was talking about uh, uh, learning martial arts or learning English with martial arts and a little bit about self-defense as well. And I found a, a bunch of publications linked on uh, researchgate.net, so I'll link those as well. Excellent. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, I've, I've, added, I've written articles on neuro-linguistic programming, some articles about English education, and some articles about, about self-defense and, and crime. It's, um, yeah, they're, they're all, you can find PDFs either on, on the web or also on my website. You'll be able to um, you know, download PDFs from there as well. And I think, you know, all of my content is is available free of charge. So just, you know, dig in and, and enjoy. Um, it's something that Ron Chappelle has always said to me, and it was said to him by his instructors as well, that knowledge has no meaning until it's shared. And that's, 
and that's that's uh, that's what I think. And knowledge is power. The more knowledge you have, the more chance you have to avoid violent confrontations in your life. And also, you can improve your communication skills and, and end up with, uh, you know, just being better at talking. I love it. My last thing I always ask all of my guests is, if you could leave any message you wanted for the world, I mean, this podcast right now, as we stand, is in 37 countries, which is mind-blowing to me. As I said earlier, uh, we were talking offline a bit. I haven't put out a new episode in three years until we're recording this now season two. And we've gotten, you know, six more countries than we were when I wrote the, when we recorded the last episode of season one. So I'm just stoked that we're reaching that many people and we've got this big of a platform that we can help anybody who's listening learn more about what that value of martial arts training is and everything related to self-defense and how it can really help your life. So uh, to my question again, what message would you like to send out to the world? Okay. Martial arts. This was said to me by um, Michael Tate, uh, one of um, Seabrook, Tom Kelly's black belts. And he said, the martial arts is in the business of making better people. And I think that's it. You know, that's what we do as instructors. Um, they might get better at kicking and punching or wielding a sword or, or rolling around on the floor. But at the end of the day, all that counts is their character and our job as, as coaches or instructors or trainers or senseis is to, um, you know, just help build better people. And the martial arts has made me a better person. And I hope that it does the same for you. So good luck on your journey. That was absolutely the note that I want to end on. Thank you so much for coming on this show. I, <laughs> I can't wait to get this episode out and uh, I'll uh, get and be in touch with you and make sure that happens here real soon. Fantastic, Steve. It's, you know, it's a Pleasure to be on here. Um, you've got some amazing martial artists have been on have on your podcast in season one, and in season two is it's just you know it's just going to keep going, and um, you know it's it's a real service to the community that you're doing. So thank you very much. I always have such a fun time chatting with Dominic. I haven't seen him in a while, so it was really cool to connect across the pond and get to chat about his story. He touched on a lot of subjects that in the modern litigious society are crucial to understanding the ramifications of self-defense and the considerations every martial artist should take into account. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate you making the time to appear on the show. Okay, season two is now two episodes in, and we've been heard in 37 countries worldwide to date. If you like what you're hearing so far with these episodes, share the positivity. It's like ripples in a pond. Tell someone you think might enjoy it. Share the links around. Together, we can help other people just by letting them share in the great experiences and stories our guests bring to every episode. Remember, Season 1 is still available at all major podcast platforms. We now have quick links for you at our website, artistsemotion.com. So it's artistsemotion.com slash iTunes, artistsemotion.com slash Google, artistsemotion.com slash Spotify, artistsemotion.com slash Amazon, and just added, artistsemotion.com slash Pandora. Find us on our Facebook page at artistsemotion. Our Twitter and Facebook is at AOM Podcast. Email pod at artistemotion.com. And yes, we are always looking for new guests. If anybody from any style or lineage is interested in participating, drop us an email. We'll get in touch and we'll make it happen. That's about it for this episode. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch you next time on the Artist of Motion Podcast. <laughs>